journey song right now. Uh, Nate wanted to lead the first ever a cappella version of, of Don't Stop Believing. I said, Nate, we just can't do that. It wouldn't be good. Uh, you, you probably wouldn't expect anything less from Nate. Nate's known for what he does up here. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. And we love Nate, by the way. We love Nate. We appreciate the songs he's led. Uh, very much, I could listen all morning to Brother Doug talk about the Lord's Supper and our Lord and what he did for us. And it's just been a moving, powerful time of worship for us this morning so far. So as we dive into God's word, I pray that it will continue to, to be that for you. Matthew chapter 18, there's, there's an event before we get into the, the meat of our lesson in our text in Acts chapter 9. There, there's an event in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 1, where the disciples come to Jesus and, and they ask Him a question. They ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I suppose that's a good question. It's kingdom related. They feel confident enough in the question that they, they go to Jesus with the question. But Jesus' answer is interesting, isn't it? Jesus obviously looks around. There are other people around. He notices and finds a child among them. He pulls this child into the midst of them. Perhaps the disciples are standing around in a circle and Jesus pulls this small child right in the middle where everyone can see him or her. And he basically says, if, if you want to be in my kingdom at all, you, you've got to become like this child. Because here was the problem. The disciples, obviously, by their question, have misunderstood the kingdom. Because they're seeking to be great in it. They want to be the greatest in the kingdom. I'm about to eat this microphone. I'm sorry. I've got to fix this. So Jesus says, no, no, no. You, you've misunderstood the kingdom. He uses a child to illustrate that the, the mindset of anyone who wants to be part of my kingdom has got to be humility. You've got to be unassuming. You've got to be filled with a pure and untainted and genuine belief in me. Not in yourself. Not even in your place or your position in the kingdom that I have come to establish you believe in me like this child. And the child is really not the point. That's why we're not told much about the child. The phrases like children and like this child are just letting us know Jesus is just trying to make a point. If you want to follow me, if you want to be part of my kingdom, you have got to be like this child. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... Jesus says it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You have to become like this child. And, and if you cause someone who believes in me like this child does, if you cause them to sin, you're in big trouble. Now, think about this for a minute. This is what this means. Listen to this. Jesus is saying to his disciples, his closest followers, that it is possible for people who think that they're part of the kingdom but have actually misunderstood it in a way that emphasizes their own greatness, those people can cause very real problems for those who really do have a pure, genuine, sincere, childlike belief 
in the king himself. Did you hear that? Considering the audience, the disciples themselves, this particular kind of faithlessness does not really apply to the world, does it? I'm saying this to my closest followers. Be careful. Be careful what you believe in. Has anyone here this morning besides me struggled to retain that childlike belief in Jesus Christ? As we get older, I'm sure you would agree, we're sometimes tempted to view the kingdom of God, the church that was purchased by the precious blood of of Jesus Christ as something other than what it actually is. Perhaps a place where we can benefit. We, like the disciples, sometimes turn inward, don't we? Wondering what we can become in this kingdom, where according to Jesus Himself, our highest possible goal would be to become a humble servant. The servant is never going to be greater than his teacher, right? Isn't that what Jesus taught in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17? Our highest possible attainable goal is to become a humble servant, and yet sometimes we stray from that simple childlike goal. You see, there's a very particular, very subtle kind of faithlessness that forgets what the kingdom is, that forgets who it belongs to, And this kind of faithlessness that generally occurs among believers is the goal of our study this morning. To communicate, to remind all of us of the importance of remaining childlike in our belief in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and King. So as we go to the old story in Acts chapter 9, it reminds me that there are some things that I need to renew my belief in. And maybe you will see the same things. Even as, as God's people, we often forget the nature and the power and the capabilities of the God that we serve, don't we? It doesn't matter how many times we've, we've been in a church building or how many songs we've sung, how many prayers we've prayed. We can forget, can't we? The disciples had had completely lost sight of this in Matthew chapter 18, and Jesus had to remind them. That's all this is this morning. Because as we get older and we move through life, we come to believe in a lot of things, don't we? As a result of the sinful world that we live in, we come to believe in in pain and sorrow and, and disappointment and the human condition. We come to believe in what's practical and what's realistic or what's within our own power to do. We develop strong beliefs about ourselves and those around us and maybe people we barely even know. We come to believe in bank accounts and insurance and jobs and marriages and friendships. And if we're really positive and forgiving, we might even still believe in the church in spite of what some of the people who belong to it have done to us. In short, our attention and our belief is sometimes misplaced, misdirected. It gets a little off. So I want to remind us from this story in Acts 9 of a few things that we need to renew our belief in. That we don't need to stop believing in. And the first of those is to renew our belief in the unlikely. To renew our belief in the unlikely. I know that this is difficult to do, so bear with me. But I want you to try to imagine 
that all you know about Saul of Tarsus, who would later be known as Paul, all you know about him is what we know in Acts chapters 7 through the beginning of chapter 9. That's all you know. And here's what that is. That this man, Saul of Tarsus, wholeheartedly approved of Stephen's illegal and brutal execution. In fact, they laid their coats at his feet. He smiled, he grinned from ear to ear as that good, devout Christian man was slowly but certainly killed and pummeled by the rocks of religious people. He watched it, he enjoyed it. He approved of it. He was an integral part, if not the ringleader, of a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, Acts 8, verse 1. He was, in fact, ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison, chapter 8, verse 3. Also, try to remember, you don't know these things because you read them in the Bible. You know them because they're happening all around you. This particular nightmare is real, and you might be next. This is affecting your family, your friends, and the church that has become your family. People you know and love are being dragged out of their homes, away from their families, going to prison and being executed because of their belief in Jesus Christ. Saul is breathing threats and murder, chapter 9, verse 1, against the disciples of the Lord. Did you hear that phrase? This is the Saul you know. He is breathing threats and murder. Robertson's word picture says that this expression means that threatening and slaughter have become the very breath that Saul breathed. Like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle, he breathed on the remaining disciples the murder that he had already breathed in from the death of the others. He exhaled what he inhaled. The taste of blood and the death of Stephen was pleasing to young Saul, and he now reveled in the slaughter of the saints, both men and women. That's the Saul you know. Paul would later say about himself in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So when you lay your head to sleep at night, in the context of our text this morning, you know full well there is a man roaming the streets who absolutely hates you because of what you believe in and who you believe in. He will stop at nothing to eliminate you and everyone like you from the face of the earth. And the Jerusalem disciples have been scattered because of this. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And his crusade, by all appearances, is just getting started. That is the Saul that you know. The only one that you know. Now let's get a little more personal. Your name is Ananias. Just for a moment, your name is Ananias. You're a believer in Jesus. You're a disciple. You gave your life to Christ. You heard the gospel. You believed you were baptized into Christ. 
You're part of the church that He bought with His blood that lives and worships in the city of Damascus, and now you're a target. You've heard that for some three days, this man is now in your city. With the full power and authority of the chief priest, the Jewish religious system behind him to arrest and presumably execute anybody who calls on the name of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Let me ask you a few questions. If your name is Ananias, will you be staying in town? Will you be sleeping well if you decide to stay in town? Will you be going about your normal business as if nothing is wrong? How about this? Would you consider this man, Saul of Tarsus, to be a good prospect for a Bible study? Would it be too much to say that the word unlikely would be a very kind and honest answer to all of the questions that we just asked? It's unlikely that I'd stay in town. If I did, it's unlikely that I would sleep well. It's unlikely that I'd go about my business as normal. And it's highly unlikely that I would look at this man and say, somebody needs to have a Bible study with him. Who wants to try that? Highly unlikely, right? But that seems to describe Ananias' view of Saul to Ananias and probably every living disciple of Jesus at the time. Saul was pure evil. He was pure evil. It did not get any worse than Saul of Tarsus. He wanted all Christians gone. With all of that in mind, with that Saul of Tarsus in mind, and the the idea that, that almost every Christian probably would have thought it's highly unlikely that this man is ever going to to follow us, follow Jesus, uh, be part of our church. With all of that in mind, think of something in your own life right here this morning that you have decided is just too unlikely to ever happen. You've thought about it. Your your opinion is not based on, on feeling, it's based on actual facts. And based on what you know and what you've experienced and and how you've seen things play out, it's just so unlikely that fill in the blank is ever going to happen, right? Would you have something like that in your life? This This is just unlikely. Let me help you a little bit. What if it's a habit or an addiction that's just taken over your life and you're to the point now where you're like, you know what, I've I've tried I've prayed, you know, I've, I've, I've really tried to do better. It just seems to me at this point, it's just really unlikely that I'm ever going to conquer this. Maybe it's your marriage. Everyone else thinks it's fine, but you know it's broken. And you think as you sit here this morning, it doesn't matter what this preacher says, it doesn't matter what I read in my Bible, how many prayers I offer, it's just really unlikely that my marriage is ever going to get any better. It's just really unlikely that this relationship that I have with my mom or my dad or my brother or sister or son or daughter or fellow Christian, it's it's broken. It's just so unlikely that that's ever going to be repaired. It's over. It's so unlikely that this person who used to be faithful to God and and is now trapped in sin, it's just so unlikely they're ever going to come back. Everyone knows it. They're gone. 
It's just so unlikely. This person that I work with, this person I go to school with, this person that's in my family, they're not going to listen to the gospel. I'm telling you this morning, there's no, there's no scenario that you could paint this morning that would be more unlikely than the one we just painted of Saul of Tarsus. You don't have a more unlikely story in your life than that one, do you? We have to start believing in the unlikely. And, and not because we can make it happen, but because our God can. Do you believe that we serve a God who can make unlikely things happen? Because if you do not, then they probably won't. It is God's desire, 2 Peter 3, 9, that, that no one should perish, but that all should reach repentance, and that is supposed to be our desire, our mission, our singular focus in life to seek out and save those people, to bring them closer to God by any means necessary. But do we believe it can happen? You know, practically speaking, we, we usually don't even try to do something that we don't believe can be done, right? I was, I was talking to Caleb this morning. Caleb is going to, y'all probably know this, he's going to run for 24 hours in a row next month. I didn't even know that was possible. You know, if you said, Jeremy, would you like to go out there with Caleb and, and try that? I would say no. And here's why I would say no. It's not that I don't like Caleb or that I don't think it'd be cool to, to run for 24 hours. I don't really. But here's the real reason. I don't believe I can do it. If I don't believe I can do it, I'm not even going to try, right? Do you have things like that in your life? I don't believe I can do that, so I'm not going to waste my time. I don't believe that person is going to listen to the gospel, so why would I bother talking to them? We've got to start believing in the unlikely. The story of Saul is proof positive that anyone can turn their life over to Christ or back to Christ in obedience to the gospel. The catch is, for me and you, if we don't believe it can happen, listen to this, that we are removing ourselves from the group of people that God could use to make it happen. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? If we don't believe that that can happen, we are removing ourselves from the group of people that God could use to make it happen. We're going to talk about this more in a few minutes, but for now I just want to encourage you to believe in the unlikely. Don't stop believing in the unlikely. Did Ananias believe in the unlikely? I don't want to read too much into this, but does it seem to you like, like Ananias has been praying for this opportunity? That when this vision comes to him, that Ananias said, what an answer to prayer, Lord, here I am, send me. No, it does not seem that Ananias has been thinking at all that Saul is a candidate for becoming a disciple of Jesus. But is there anyone in your life that you couldn't pray for and honestly believe that they could become a Christian? Could you do that? Is there anyone in your life that you couldn't get on your knees and pray about and believe that it's at least possible and that you want to see them give their life to Jesus? See, if we could do that, that would put us, I think, one step ahead of Ananias who doesn't even seem to have anticipated what God was going to ask him to do. Believe in the unlikely. Can you do that a little bit better starting today? 
I think, I think we can. Can we become a little more childlike in that way? I think we can. Number two, believe in the uncomfortable. I just want you to imagine for a moment, you're in Ananias' shoes. And you have a vision, and it's God. And God says, listen, I want you to go to this house on this street in town. There's a guy in there, uh, there named Saul of Tarsus. I want you to go talk to him and baptize him. Can you imagine hearing that from God, a vision? You might be thinking, you got the wrong number, God. You got the wrong person. I wonder how much Ananias was already doing for the Lord when he had this vision. Think about this for a minute. We're told in Acts 22, verse 12, that, that Ananias was a devout man, living according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. You don't get that reputation by just showing up at church every now and then, by filling a pew. Ananias is probably like a lot of the people here at Dalreda. So many good things on his plate that he doesn't even know if he has room for one more. If somebody asks him to do one more thing that's good, he might just say, I, I just can't do it. I got nowhere to put it. Well, God does ask him to do just one more thing, doesn't he? But this isn't just one more thing. This is not bringing somebody a meal. This is not writing somebody a card. This is not stacking broth onto pallets or teaching a Bible class, is it? All those things are good, and they all come with a little bit of, of, of discomfort, especially if, if Mark Davidson is driving the forklift at the warehouse. And then you get really uncomfortable. But, but most of the time, these are things we can do with very little discomfort, right? What God is asking Ananias to do is 100% uncomfortable. And it's not because he thinks that he'll get sweaty or hot or tired or he'll miss his favorite TV show. He's worried that Saul might kill him. So he's very uncomfortable. What God asked Ananias to do was highly Uncomfortable, and you can hear it in his voice. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. That's what Ananias said to God. I think it's funny, don't you? That when we get uncomfortable, we say strange things like, God, did you realize? God, you might not have seen the news last night. I realize you're not on Twitter, but I need to just kind of update you on, on what Saul has been doing because clearly you did not get the message about Saul. So Ananias is so uncomfortable that he feels like he needs to remind God about something. When we get comfortable serving God, it's because we've been kind of, we've been kind of choosy about how we do it. Here's what I mean. We live in a society and a culture, and you would agree with this, where we get to kind of choose everything, don't we? We, we get to choose our home and, and our vehicles and our clothing and the shows that we watch and the food that we eat and the hobbies we participate in. We even get to choose which church we're going to be a part of. And if any of that makes us uncomfortable, guess what we usually do? We make another choice. We don't have to be uncomfortable in this culture very often, do we? And if we ever get really uncomfortable, we can just go somewhere else. Or do something else. Or be around some other group of people. And that's not necessarily wrong when it comes to certain aspects of life. But when that happens in our service to God, 
We're in a dangerous place, spiritually speaking, when we don't do anything that we don't want to do for God. That we're not comfortable doing. We really put ourselves in a dangerous position, don't we? And we might say it like this. I'm just not very good at that. Somebody else is already doing that. I'm doing enough for the Lord. Well, Ananias probably could have said all of those things. But God didn't accept that. God said, no, I'm talking to you. And Ananias is one in a long line of many people who were put in this uncomfortable position by God, right? I mean, do you think Noah really wanted to be in the position that he was in? Do you think that Abraham really wanted to do the things God called him to do? Do you think Moses really wanted to go back to Egypt? He clearly did not. Exodus chapters 3 and 4. What about Gideon? Do you really want to do this, Gideon? No, I really don't. This is very uncomfortable for me. God still does it, doesn't He? He still puts us in those positions to do uncomfortable things. I mean, who's really comfortable going to talk to someone who's fallen away from the faith? And maybe they're not even known for being nice when people come to talk to them. Who, who's comfortable doing that? Who's comfortable talking to a coworker or a person you go to school with who can't say five words without four of them being curse words? Who's comfortable asking them to have a Bible study? Who's comfortable bringing up God or Christ or the church to that family member who's not receptive? Who's comfortable being in a hospital room with somebody we know is not going to get any better? Who's comfortable being at the funeral of a person whose family is completely devastated and we have no idea what to say, how to comfort them? Who's comfortable talking to somebody that you know and love who's living in a particular sin and won't admit it? None of us are. But do we believe that those things are necessary and an important part of what God has called us to believe in? Seems clear to me Ananias didn't believe this was going to work. This is what Ananias seemed to think. This is God's first bad idea, and it's up to me to talk him out of it. That's what Ananias seems to have thought. And I'm sure you already see the connection here between believing in the unlikely and believing in the uncomfortable. If we believe in the unlikely, it's probably going to need to lead to something uncomfortable, isn't it? Probably going to eventually involve that because we knew it wasn't going to be easy. If it was ever going to happen, it was not going to happen easily or quickly or comfortably. But see, here's what we do, and Caleb could tell you this about what he does in, in his races. We usually do uncomfortable things when we know it's going to pay off, right? When we know there's some kind of reward on the other side of that. So we push through the discomfort because there's something on the other side of that that we want. For those of us who exercise at all, we don't enjoy it. If you enjoy it, you need to, I don't know, you're a weirdo. I just don't know many people who enjoy exercise, but, but we know we need to do it because it gives benefits and blessings. And so we push through the discomfort. I want to eat every piece of cake that I see. I really do. But I know that if, if I don't push through that, I, I'll be unhealthy. Okay, And so there's, there's lots of things that we're, we're uncomfortable with and we push through because there's something on the other side. If that was done spiritually, if we believed 
that something good, something positive was on the other side of that uncomfortable situation, we might push ourselves through it. James 5, verses 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, probably seems unlikely, right? But if somebody actually does that, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, there's a blessing on the other side of that discomfort, isn't there? There's a blessing on the other side of that unpleasant conversation that you know you're going to have to have, isn't there, that might cause you to actually do it. See, it's quite possible you and I already know what we need to do about a certain situation right here this morning. We just haven't done it yet because we don't believe it will work or to be too awkward, or too forced, or too calculated, or just too uncomfortable. So we just haven't done it yet. We're not Ananias. And it's unfortunate, I suppose, that we don't have God telling us directly what to do. I guess that would make it easier on some level. But let me tell you something. The closest you and I are ever going to get to, to what God said to Ananias is what's happening right now. God's Word is speaking to you right now. Every time you open the Bible, God's Word is speaking. That's the closest you're going to get to that vision that Ananias had. So we better be listening. God would definitely and still definitely puts us in uncomfortable situations as we serve Him. So believe in the uncomfortable. Don't be choosy in how you serve God. Don't just choose to serve God in the ways that, that are easy or comfortable for you. Push yourself a little bit. Third, believe in the unremarkable. Why Ananias? Why Ananias? I'm sure that Ananias himself asked that question. Why, why did you pick me? Wouldn't you like to know more about Ananias? I would. That was one of the most frustrating things about this lesson. There's not a lot we know about Ananias. Was he an elder? Was he a deacon? Was he an evangelist? Was he just a member of the body of Christ in Damascus? We don't know. If there was anything specific that set him apart from any other disciples, we just are not told. I will say this, though. He wasn't the only devout man in town with a good reputation. That's what we know about him. He couldn't have been the only one in town that was devout with a good reputation. Why do I say that? Because that was the baseline qualification for every disciple of Jesus Christ. That's, that's how they were all supposed to be. I'm not trying to be judgmental at all or negative, but I think we all agree that the first century church in some ways was not like the one today. There weren't too many casual or cultural Christians back then. And here's why. Because if, if you heard or I heard on the news tonight that there is a man with a name and, and a, some legal authority behind him who might be coming to your house tonight or this congregation this morning to drag you off to prison because of your faith, you might see a few less people in this building this morning. That's, I'm just saying you might. So back then, you know, the devout people were probably a little more common. The stakes were too high. The risks were too great. Then it would have been much easier to find one, perhaps. So I don't know that that makes Ananias remarkable in any way. So the simple truth seems to be he's, he's rather unremarkable. Devout, yes. Faithful, yes. Good reputation, yes. Remarkable? Not by the standards that we would have. 
So there's another person in a long line of relatively unremarkable people that God called on to do remarkable things. So maybe we shouldn't be asking, why Ananias? Maybe we should be asking, why not Ananias? Was any of this really about him anyway? Couldn't someone else have done this? This does not seem to be a job that was tailor-made for Ananias. He's been asked to go to a certain house on a certain street to lay his hands on a certain man. We know that he baptized him. He may have prepared a meal, but does that sound like something you need specialized training for? If you can read street signs, if you can knock on a door, if you can lift your arms, dunk a man underwater, and maybe cook a small meal, you can do what God asked Ananias to do. So why not? Why not Ananias? We don't want to underestimate him, but we also don't want to overestimate him. He's just a part of what God was trying to do to bring Saul into his family. There are things that Ananias was not part of that brought Saul to this point. Remember the light on the road to Damascus when Jesus himself appeared to Saul and spoke to him? Remember the voice of Jesus, the people who helped him then when he lost his sight to get to Damascus, to get into this house? The three days that he spent in that house before Ananias showed up without eating or drinking? Imagine what was going on in the mind of Saul during those three days. Here's the bottom line. Ananias didn't really save Saul, did he? Would anybody in this room today or in the world today read this story and give Ananias the credit? He wasn't praying for Saul. He wasn't anxiously awaiting his arrival in Damascus so that he could try and convert him. He wasn't even excited about the prospect of visiting him. He just did what God told him to do. He played his part. And God did the rest. And maybe that's the point. Maybe one of the greatest lessons we can learn is that we don't save anybody. God does that. And He just uses you and I as unremarkable vessels to accomplish His purposes. Don't you remember what Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 3, beginning in verse 5? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So if it's true for Paul, if it's true for Apollos, certainly true of Ananias, and it must be true of you and I. Sometimes we fall victim to this mentality that everything is revolving around us, and we kind of become self-centered and self-absorbed, which is how we're being trained in this culture. And we are not putting ourselves in a position to be used by God. The Lord has work that He wants us to do. We're servants, vessels, instruments, jars of clay to do that. So the real reason that a lot of us have trouble doing what we should do is because maybe we don't, long, don't believe anymore in the unremarkable. Because that's how we see ourselves. And we don't believe that unremarkable people can do anything important. People who accomplish great things for God have got to be important people. Maybe they have to be preachers or elders or, or deacons or youth ministers or people with high levels of skill and talent that I'll never have. Well, can you walk? Can you talk? Can you obey? If, if the answer is yes, then God absolutely can and will use you to do something remarkable. The Bible tells us it's the job of all of those people that I just mentioned, the preachers, the teachers, the elders, the deacons, 
It's their job to equip the saints for the work of ministry, Ephesians 4, verse 12. It's never been their job to do all of that ministry, has it? It's just their job to equip other people, the saints, to do that ministry. That's everyone's job. It's everyone's job. It's the job of the leaders to to equip you, young people, to go into your school and to believe that God can do something remarkable if you will be willing to do something uncomfortable. That's your job. And, you know, if you're not equipped to do that, I would say talk with Jared or Nate or any of the deacons who work with those groups of young people, and we will be glad to help equip you for that. But that's what we've all been called to do. To equip people to go to the job where you are the only Christian. And to allow God to use you as His instrument to show Christ to the people you work with. If you don't feel equipped to do that, talk with a trusted Christian friend or one of the ministers or the elders and we would be glad to help equip you do that. It's our job to equip each other to go home and live the kind of faithful, godly life that will show our families what it truly means to be part of the kingdom of God. No one else can do it for us, can we? And God wouldn't give us a job we couldn't do. If you don't feel equipped to do that, parents, you might start by coming to this Lads to Leaders lunch meeting today. This is not a shameless plug either for the Lads to Leaders program. It's an actual means of becoming more equipped to do what God has called us to do in our homes. So I told you we'd come back to why we often stop believing in the unlikely. And this is why. It's because we develop this false idea that we are the ones responsible for saving people. And we're not. We're just responsible for telling them how God can save them. So renew your belief in the unremarkable. The unremarkable. Finally, believe in the undiscovered. This, is, this will be quick. But one of the neatest parts of this story to me is this. As far as we know, how many people did Ananias have a part in converting? As far as we know. We know of one. That Ananias had a part in converting one person. Maybe he converted a lot, but we know about one. How many people did Paul have a part in converting? Hundreds? Thousands? We don't know, but we know that it was in those categories. It wasn't one. It wasn't single digits. We know very little about Ananias, but we know a lot about Paul. Do we realize, do we appreciate the shift that took place in order for that to happen? How many Pauls are out there waiting for their Ananias? How many? Just waiting for that person who, who answers God's call through Scripture to go to the person who's the most unlikely in the world to follow Jesus and to try. You might say, I'll never be a Paul. <laughs> and you're probably right. You're probably right. But if we will be like Ananias, and we all can be, it's possible that we might find a Paul. And how cool is that? Can you imagine the smile that would have come across old man Ananias' face every time he heard about another church that Paul had started halfway around the world? 
I mean, I, I can almost feel that little swell of the, the right kind of pride every time Ananias heard that Paul had been beaten again because of his faith and that he was still going. If God allows you and I to reach an old age and to reflect on our work in His kingdom, certainly that reflection should include the souls, whether one or a thousand, that we have helped bring to belief in Jesus Christ and the souls that those people helped bring to Christ. The ripple effect that takes place when we believe in the unlikely, in the uncomfortable, in the unremarkable, and the undiscovered is truly humbling in a work of God Himself. So what a great God we serve and what great opportunities He has laid at our feet each and every day if we will watch for them and take advantage of them. In a world of faithlessness, don't stop believing. Don't stop believing in, in the things that maybe you have stopped believing in this morning. Maybe you're struggling with that. We all do. Jesus' closest followers have, have struggled with that. So this morning, if you're here and, and you need to be strengthened in your faith, I hope that God's Word has done that for you this, this morning just a little bit. If you need more than that, if you need to, to talk and study and pray and and have somebody walk beside you in your faith and, and really mentor you and, and study with you. We have people here that would love to do that. No matter who you are and what you're going through. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not even a Christian. You, you have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't know Him. Well, you can this morning. You can leave here in a, a very different state, a very different condition spiritually than you came, if that's what you want to do. This body of believers is not perfect, but this body of believers loves the Lord, loves His Word, loves His church, and loves you. And if there's a spiritual need that you have this morning, would you please let us know what that is so that we can help you. In Jesus' name, we will pray for you, and we will walk with you side by side. So please let us know how we can help you as we stand and sing.